Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Good morning. Uh, good, glad, that, glad to be with you this morning. Um, so, so glad to be with you today. Um, just want to make a, a, a really quick welcome to our kiddos. We're so glad you're here. You should have gotten a bag on the way in. Hey, kiddos. Um, and we're, we're so thankful you're here. Be sure to uh, look inside that bag. You'll find a craft for you to do, as well as a laminated sheet to follow along in uh, the sermon. Um, again, thank you, for, uh, Angie, for reading the scriptures. We love God's word here. We, we submit ourselves to it uh, as we come under, under it today. Um, a couple of announcements before we get started. First are our values, uh, who we are as a church. Um, we are, a, uh, we are a, a church that's committed to the gospel community and mission. The gospel is the good news that Jesus gave his life for us, that we could belong to God's family. And so we, uh, we are so thankful for Jesus, for what he's done for us, that he would die upon the cross and no matter what, uh, where we come from, no matter uh, what walk of life we're in, we, ha- we can find hope and life in Christ. Uh, secondly is community. That's a compound word of common and unity. We have a common hope in Christ, regardless uh, of our culture, our background, our ethnicity. We all find this common hope in Christ. And so we live together as a new people. And then lastly, mission. The, God's new, the good news is just too good to keep to ourselves. So we tell others about what Christ has done and that our lives are so shaped by what Jesus has done that we seek to live uh, for the good of others in our city and around the world. A couple things coming up I want to make you aware of. This coming Friday, we have our Discover class. That is our membership class. If you're interested, you don't, this doesn't mean you have to become a member if you go through this class, um, but this is the first step toward membership. It's a two-hour class to just really learn who we are as a church, discover what it means uh, to be a part of, of City on the Hill, our distinctives, our beliefs, so on and so forth. So that's going to be this Friday. You can sign up for that on our website at uh, coaforesthills.org slash events. Just click on that event. Uh, and then just want to tell you a little bit about summer. Summer is coming up. We have an incredible summer uh, that we're going to be spending together. Um, we're going to be taking a break from community groups here in a couple of weeks at the end of May. Then we're going to have a, a couple of weeks where we have a break with some, some, some kind of some self-guided time of rest and restoration. Uh, we'll send a guide out for that. And then in mid-June, we're going to do something a little different for the summer as we really prioritize relationships. Uh, we're going to have a men's group that gets together on Tuesday nights and a women's group that gets together on Wednesday nights. And then at the end of the month, we're all going to get together. We're going to share a meal. We're do some discipleship with our kids and just really prioritize relationship this summer. We also have a, whoa, also have a couple of other things coming up uh, this summer as well, as far as a, a day at the beach, um, a day uh, hiking, and it's also uh, some time up at Canopy Lake. So be on the lookout for that guide sometime in the next uh, week or so. Uh, now, when, we, when it comes to the Bible, I mentioned earlier, we submit ourselves to the scriptures. And one thing we do is we don't shy away from anything in the Bible. Like we don't skip over stuff in the scriptures. We just teach what the scriptures say. So, so if we come across something that's a little weird, we don't go around it. We just address it head on. And so, uh, and when we look at this passage in Jude that we're reading, you may have been hearing some things and going, wow, that seems like a lot. This is a very loaded passage. And so there's, there's two things we don't want to do today. The first thing is we don't want to skip over this stuff. 
We don't want to skip over it because there's some important things in here. There's maybe some uncomfortable things for us as people living in a city, but also we don't want to chase every rabbit trail either. There's some stuff we could really go down a path with this morning and and kind of miss the main point. And so what I do want to do though is offer uh, tomorrow at noon, uh, we're going to do a Q&A on Zoom. Anybody wants to jump in and wants to jump into anything from this text, I'll be glad to do so. Just see coaforestills.org slash Zoom. Uh, You can just, that will take you to a Zoom link. Jump in and we'll answer any question that you have about this text. But the thing we need to remember about the Bible is that the point of the Bible is this. It is to help us see and savor God's glory as revealed to us in Jesus Christ. It's for us to see and savor God's glory revealed in Jesus Christ. And sometimes we can get kind of overwhelmed by some of the details. We can get distracted by some of the stories, some of the miraculous things, some of the things that rub us wrong uh, uh, culturally. Uh, But we really want to focus on the idea that we see and savor Jesus. And so the purpose that Jude wrote this letter, and so when you have an ancient letter like this, there was always the greeting. And then right after the greeting, the writer would give the purpose for his letter. And and here Jude says that he is eager, he was eager to write to you about our common salvation. To these beloved people, those who were loved by God, known by God, he wants them to see and savor Jesus, to grow in their faith. He says, I wanted to just write to you about this common salvation. But I found it necessary to write appealing to you, to contend for the faith. There's something happening in the life of this church that necessitated a change in tone, a change in topic, something that was so dangerous to the life of this church that that Jude had to address it. And so what we see in this letter is what Jackie Hill Perry calls a letter of both grace and truth. We start out with this wonderful picture last week of what God has done for us to call us to himself by his grace, to love us as his own and to keep us regardless of what we've done, regardless of what we might do, that we would do so. But there's also a lot of truth in this letter. And Jude says, he he appeals to us. He says, I want you to contend for the faith. Now, contend sounds just like that. It sounds contentious. It sounds like he's prepping us for a fight. The word contend is a strong word. It means to struggle or to grapple and to stand your ground for what you believe. And he's calling us as the church to grapple with the faith. This is the picture of two amateur wrestlers tying up at the beginning of a wrestling match, jockeying for position. And the reason that he tells us to do this is for certain people have crept in unnoticed. There are people who've crept in who would be a threat to our unity as a church, people who would be a threat to our doctrine and what we believe as a church. It would cause us to take our hope and our focus off of the hope of Christ. He says, contend for this because some will come in and try to steal this. They will come in, try to take it away. And and he's saying this not because the gospel's fragile, not because the faith is fragile, but because we are. The gospel is strong. And and Charles Spurgeon said, the gospel is like a lion. Just open the cage, it will defend itself. The gospel's not weak, we are. We need the Lord moment by moment, day by day, hour by hour to sustain our faith. And as a new church plant, it is going to be incredibly easy for us to stray from the gospel. 
It's going to be incredibly easy for false doctrine to creep in, for us to be susceptible to every new and novel idea or teaching or our cave to cultural pressure or compromise on core beliefs. And so for us, as, as a new church that's still forming, still getting to know each other, it's going to be easy for us to get tossed about. We're a little bit like a, like a little boat in the middle of a hurricane. That's not where you want to be. We have to have something that anchors us. And that anchor for us is Jesus Christ. That anchor for us is the common hope, the common faith that we have in the gospel. And so we must be a church committed to rooting ourselves in our faith, the faith delivered to us once and for all, delivered to us today and be ready to contend for it. And so this morning, I want to give three reasons why we need to contend for the faith. The first reason is that we contend for the faith to make God's glory evident. When the gospel is rightly understood, it makes God look great. When the gospel is rightly understood, God is the one who looks glorious. And we, I want to ask you this from last week. If we remember what we talked about last week, who did the work in the gospel? Who does the work in the, God's story? Us or God? God, this is an easy one. This is God does the work because it's God who called. It's God who loves. It's God who saves. We simply receive this. And what this means is that for us, there is, there's no room to boast. There's no room for us to be prideful. There's no room for us to think that we're doing better than other people because we're all simply needy people receiving salvation. We see how good he is. And so when we get how good he is, how great he is, we have to be ready to fight for that gospel, to fight for this good news, to be the most clearly communicated thing that we possibly could, that God would get the glory. And so when we talk about contending for the faith, we need to understand what the faith is. The word faith here is not simply belief. It's not having faith in something. I, I believe that I'm going to drive my car and get home after today. What it means, the faith here is a set of teachings, a, a core doctrine around who God is and what he has done. Lincoln Duncan says this is a body of Christian doctrine. And in fact, we're going to go through the Apostles' Creed starting in June. The Apostles' Creed is the oldest known creed and confession of the early church outside of the Bible. And with this, we're going to look at base, the basics of what it means to be a Christian. You kind of have to believe these things to be a Christian. So it's this faith, this set of doctrines, this set of beliefs that was once for all delivered to the saints. The term once for all here means this. It means that the same message and the same faith we're hearing today has been passed down from us for gener to us from generation to generation. That the very things we are believing are the very things that the early church believed. The very things that the writers of, of the New Testament believe. The very things that Jesus believed. That we are not communicating opinion this morning. These are not my ideas. These are not my insights. This is not an opinion. This is God's very word. And so we don't get to pick and choose what the Bible says. God gave his word. He spoke his word to the, to the writers of the Bible and they wrote down and communicated what God said. And this is why the apostles' teaching in Acts 2 was passed down to the church and they received it. And what Jude is saying is that there are people who will creep in and cause that to be at stake. 
And that this false teaching that's being described deflects from God's glory so much that in verse four, it says of these people that they deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They live these radically immoral lives so much that uh, verse 15 says that they are ungodly people doing ungodly things in ungodly ways. That's pretty strong, right? That everything you're doing and thinking is ungodly. And to describe these types of false teachings and these, these false teachers and these false ideas that find their way into the church, Jude gives us several different Old Testament examples. So we're going to kind of ping pong around the text a little bit today. So I'll try to give you the verse so you know where we're at, but just want to make you aware we're going to move around a little bit. But we do see a few common threads throughout the text that tell us what was kind of wrapped up in this false teaching. The first thing we see is that they rejected authority. Verse six, it says that these false teachers are like the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, that they left their proper place of serving God. And that what we believe, scholars believe, this is likely a reference back to Genesis chapter six, when angels took on the form of men in order to sleep with human women. So maybe you may be referred to this as the Nephilim, uh, the, the giants, the, these large people. And so you may be going, okay, that sounds weird. This sounds crazy, but that's not the craziest thing we believe as Christians. I'll put that out there. We believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but if there's a God who's powerful over all things, this is possible. Can I get an amen on that? Okay. He also mentions Korah's rebellion in verse 11, that they rebelled and Korah and his people rebelled against Moses and Aaron because of the power that God had given them and that they didn't believe that Aaron's family should hold on to the priesthood. So, so whose authority are they rebelling against? God's authority, right. Verse eight says they are so rebellious that they blaspheme the glorious ones. This is an odd statement, but something about their teaching was blaspheming or, or putting themselves above angels. It was, it was a stepping out of their place. It was a self-aggrandizing. And I want you to notice the difference between that and in verse nine, where the archangel Michael, who in the ranking of angels was a high ranking angel, contends with the devil disputing over the body of Moses. What, what exactly is going on here? This, this is very similar to Zechariah chapter three, where the high priest Joshua was standing before God in filthy rags and Satan is accusing him, saying that he is, does not deserve to be in the presence of God. Very similarly in this text, what's being described is Moses, who Satan, tradition, they believe Satan was accusing him of being a murderer and someone who was left out of the promised land as a reason that he couldn't go into God's presence. And yet, the archangel Michael, though he may have wanted to, did not condemn and judge him as only God could. He said, the Lord rebuke you. That there's a better story for Moses. See, so what is this rejecting of authority then? It is the stepping outside of our place into God's place. That if not even the archangel Michael is willing to do that, neither can we. And so this is the reason that Jude calls him in verse 13, these false teachers, wandering stars, those who should be fixed in position, but who are wandering out of their God-given place. As, and they step into the same error that Adam and Eve did as they took of the, the fruit of the, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, becoming like God, doing what they don't understand. In verse 10, they blaspheme these false teachers what they don't understand. They pronounce eternal judgment like God does. And anytime that we reject God-given authority, we deflect away from his glory. 
This is a person who sees through everything as a cynic and as a judge. But the problem is, is when you see through everything, you don't see anything. So they reject authority. And similarly, the second thread we see is sexual immorality. And when we think about sexual immorality, sexual immorality is not temptation. Sexual immorality is practice or behavior. And when you compare this to verse, uh, uh, verse seven, Jude compares the, the teachings and the lifestyles of, these, of these, uh, these false teachers to Sodom and Gomorrah. If you're familiar with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, back in Genesis 18, God was gonna destroy the city because of the wickedness of their sins. This, these were people who were sexually wicked in every way. It's commonly, um, when we think of Sodom and Gomorrah, the, the, uh, the, the issue of homosexuality gets brought up. And this was a city that was known for rampant homosexual acts, uh, homosexual practice and behavior. But it wasn't just that. It was every form of sexual wickedness, so much so that Ezekiel called it violent. Peter said that this was a daily, persistent, flagrant, in-your-face type of sexual sin that Lot had to see every single day. And, And listen, I want to be very clear. We're not picking on anyone here. Sexual immorality is, the Bible defines it, is any sexual behavior or practice or sin that's outside of God's design for man and woman inside of marriage. This is different than sexual temptation. This is even different than desire or orientation. This is a call to not act on our, on our desires, but to live our lives in God-glorifying ways. Verse 8 says that these teachers defiled their flesh, going after unnatural desires Something about their teaching gave a license toward sexual sin in in a way that detracted from the glory of God, denying what God called good and believing that they could be satisfied outside of God's good design. We we want to be a people who long for for God's glory to be evident, evident in us. So any doctrine, any idea, any thought that threatens that, we have to be willing to address it. But ultimately, this starts in us. It's so easy for us to look at other people and say their lives don't live up to God's glory. But let's be honest about our own. Does my life always live up to God's glory? Does does my life reflect his glory? Are there ways that I'm rejecting God's authority in my life? Is Is the way that you use your job or think through your relationships or your habits, do they glorify God? Are you and I trying to find satisfaction somewhere other than the Lord? We have to contend with our own souls in order to live with God's glory in mind. The second reason we contend for the faith is to make the gospel clear. False teaching always muddies the gospel. It makes it very unclear as to Jesus's message. And again, what is the gospel? We talked about this last week, that God, through his mercy and grace, calls sinners to himself that he invites anyone who is willing to receive what Jesus did on their behalf and he calls them, he loves them and he promises to keep them. Jude says this is our common salvation. So what makes this salvation common? Jackie O'Perry puts it this way. She says, salvation isn't reserved for a particular kind of person. Important people don't get first dibs on salvation. People who might think themselves to be more moral than others don't either. God's offer of salvation is given to all. John 3.16 says that whoever believes in Christ shall not perish but have eternal life. 
meaning anybody, anywhere, no matter the age, socioeconomic status, ethnicity, or even sin preference. Salvation can happen for and to them. This salvation is common because it is shared by man and is available to anyone who chooses to believe in Christ Jesus. What makes it common is this, that we all need it and that we can all receive it. That we all need it and we can all receive it. I wanna make this clear again. We are not picking on any person or any, or any group of people. We all need salvation because guess what? All of us reject God's authority. All of us are sexually broken. All of us deny Jesus as Lord. And the message of the gospel is really, really clear that Jesus died for you regardless of what you've done, regardless of what you desire, regardless of what you long for. It's that if you trust him, it's yours. It's that simple. But the problem with making something that simple is we try to complicate it, right? It, seems, it just seems too easy. The, the gospel seems too easy. So what we're tempted to do is add things to it or take them or twist them. And so false teaching always distracts from the gospel. Verse four says that false teachers and their ideas would creep in. That idea of cre- crept in or creeping in is subtle. It's, it's deceptive. So much so that verse 12 says that these false teachers are like hidden reeves. If, you, if, you're, if you're in a boat and you're in water, you want to have a depth finder, right? Matt Harris, can you agree with me on that? Thank you very much. You want to have a depth finder because you don't want to run up on a rock or on a reef that's going to rip up the bottom of your boat. He says that these false teachers are like that. They're hidden in plain sight. So much so that they're at your love feast, which back then they would have a giant feast before communion, and they're sitting there without their conscience being seared at all because of their sin. They're, they're in your midst. False ideas creep in, and there's this slow fade that begins to draw us away into false teaching. False teaching either adds to, deletes from, or distracts from the gospel. It will add additional criteria. Just like Paul in the Galatians, he charged those who crept in with trying to re-add the Jewish law to the gospel. It deletes from the gospel by saying, well, you know, you don't need to obey anymore. You don't need to try to do good things because you, you, your sins are forgiven. But Jesus freed us to obey. Or it distracts from the gospel that our focus goes somewhere else. So what are some of the false teachings we're most susceptible to? I think the number one right now is is politics. Politics has been described as the new religion. And sometimes we make this a test of fellowship where we say, you know what? You have to be blank in order to be a Christian. So you have to vote as a Republican or you have to vote as a Democrat or you can't vote for this person. And if you do so, you're not really a Christian. And what we end up doing is we end up compromising biblical convictions for political power. Another one is self, self self-identity. I get to decide who I am. I get to decide what's right. I get to decide what makes me happy. This idea of self-actualization, that I will become who I think I need to become because I'm the one who's autonomous. I'm the one who's in control. Another piece of that is self-centeredness. You know what? It's all about me. It's all about my needs. It's all about my personality. It's all about my wants. And so we filter all the commands of God, not through the 59 one another's, but it's I'm going to love me. I'm going to do me. Look, I love the Enneagram. We talk about the Enneagram a lot. I also hate the Enneagram. You know why? Because all we end up doing with the Enneagram is focusing on how do I get out of loving other people? 
Not a lot of amens for that one. I get it. What does false teaching do? It perverts the grace of God. Verse four, it perverts the grace of God into sensuality. Here in this context, an excuse to commit sexual sin, but you could really add anything in there. See, there's a danger that when we begin to use our own reasoning, our own thoughts, our own ideas in order to make sin acceptable, in order to justify and rationalize it, what we end up doing is we delude ourselves into thinking that God is okay with our sin. In fact, verse eight, these false teachers, they would actually rely on their dreams, believing that they had heard from God. And they would say things like, you know, who can question this if I think it's God's will? It could be anything. It could be our, the way that we work. It could be our ethical decisions. It could be our attitude. I literally did have someone one time tell me, they said, you know what? I prayed and, I, and God said, I don't really need to love other people. I just need to focus on myself right now. That, that's not in the Bible. This is not in the Bible. Judges, in, in the book of Judges, it said everyone did what, he se- what, he se- what seemed right in his own eyes. And so much so here in verse 10, it says, if we do this, we're like unreasoning animals, understanding instinctively, and this just leads to our own destruction. Our dreams, our desires, our longings, no matter what they may be, they must be checked against the word of God. They must be checked against God's character. For Jude, he does this through the Old Testament. For us, we do this through the Bible. We do this through looking at the character of Jesus. Are we people who are committed to setting ourselves under this faith once for all delivered to the saints? This means that we submit ourselves in a way. So what does this mean for us? It means that we never stop needing the gospel. Look, my great fear for us is that as we grow older, look, as as an early church plan, everything's by faith. There's, there's no roots. There's not a ton of money in the bank account. Like we're, we're literally living, living on faith every week going, okay, I hope every week people come. I hope every week we love our neighbors well, because if we don't, you know, we're, we're living on faith here. But as we begin to get more established and we begin to trust in our systems and the money in the bank account and, and the leaders that we've trained, we end up becoming like the churches in Revelation where Jesus says, you've forgotten your first love. Just like in verse five, where it said Jesus saved the people out of Egypt, Egypt, Egypt and afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Devoting ourselves to the faith means that the gospel would permeate every area of our lives, that we would be people who truly believe our identity is first and foremost in Jesus. That before we're anything else, we are sons and daughters of God that the culture of the gospel would begin to permeate our lives in such a way that we love each other like Jesus loves and that the gospel would drive us to mission that others would know about Christ. I want us to grow in this. I want us to be a people who confess sin, who repent, who look to Jesus alone, who don't have to be strong, but who can be weak before him, who grow in our understanding of the faith. See, to contend for the faith, you have to know the content of the faith. Paul told the Romans, faith comes through hearing the word of Christ. The reason that I want to read the Bible every day is because I don't trust my own heart. That I know I make a terrible God and that if I don't, I'm not going to understand the faith that I'm trying to contend for. 
Let us be people who strain and strive to know Christ more because of his great love for us. Lastly, we want to contend for the faith to protect God's people. Jude wanted to protect this church from false teaching, and he wants to show us through the text where false teaching leads. And it is clearly not a good place. Verse 4, the false teachers are those who are designated for condemnation. That sounds bad. Verse 5, like Israel, because of unbelief, they're destroyed. Like in verse 6, like the angels, they are reserved for gloomy darkness. Verse 7, like Sodom and Gomorrah, they're going to eternal fire. Verse 13, those, these false teachers are heading for the gloom of darkness. And in verses 14 and 15, Enoch's prophecy of judgment over them, over the ungodly, as if they would be separated from God. What's being described here? Hell. Now, I know hell is not a something we like to talk about. The idea of hell may seem even repulsive to you, but we have to ask ourselves this. Do you want to live in a world where God doesn't punish sin? Do you want to live in a world where, where murder and rape and injustice go undealt with? It makes us uncomfortable that there is an eternal separation from God for those who do not repent of their sins against a good and holy God. And so he protects us by way of warning. He says, there is a salvation for you, that you're saved from something, that Jesus did not just come so that you could have a better life here. He came to deal with your eternity because sin leads to death. He's not just talking about earthly misery, but eternal punishment. But he's also saying it doesn't have to be that way. Jesus will save anyone who trusts him. So he protects by way of warning, but he also protects by way of example. He says, I want you to see where their life leads. Verse 11, he says, woe. This proclamation of deep grief over their grievous state that they would lead others into. And he details this in verse 11, that they would be like the way of Cain, a murderer who, if you notice the text, led others astray into that same Sin, like Balaam, the prophet who plotted against his own people for monetary gain, like Korah, who persisted in rebellion, that their character is going to be revealed over time. These people who shipwreck the faith of others, who could sit in church on a Sunday, who look just like you and me, who give money and go on mission trips and oftentimes say the right things, will sit there with hidden sin in such a way that they will take communion and not feel bad about it. You begin to see it. These were shepherds who were self-serving, waterless clouds. They were doing the opposite of what their outward appearance would look like because clouds are meant to bring rain on dry land. They were fruitless trees that promised something good, but yet were twice dead, which in the literal text means totally dead. But also that their shame and their evil would come to the surface, just like waves bringing up foam. What's Jude getting at here? God wants more for you than what false teaching promises. And it's worth contending for the faith because the gospel alone leads to life. See, here's what we get in Christ. Here's what you can have in Christ if you don't know him yet. You actually get the opposite of verse four. You don't have to creep in. You're called in by God's grace into a new family. You don't stand designated for condemnation. You are designated for eternity with God because you're loved and kept by Jesus. 
You don't have to pervert the grace of God. You get to receive and rest in the grace of God. You don't deny Jesus. You get to trust him as your Lord who promised to be enough. As a city on a hill, I want us to be a people who cling to the faith, cling to Christ alone, who contend for Christ alone, who tell others about it and embody this gospel so that God gets glory and that our neighbors and friends experience the hope of Jesus. So a couple of questions as we close. Have you given your life to Christ? Have you trusted this Jesus who promised a salvation? The salvation is common. It can be yours if you simply put your faith in Jesus alone. Secondly, are there some areas of your life where maybe some false ideas have crept in or beginning to creep in, or maybe have even started to take root in such a way that have deflected your eyes from God's glory, have deflected your eyes from the gospel, and have made you, caused you not to love others well? Let's contend for the faith well. Let's pray.